acknowledging that we are on the lands of the Salish uh, peoples. Uh, the Salish had their, um, their, their main uh, home down the Bitterroot, but this Missoula Valley was considered uh, Salish land, although it was kind of a crossroads, and many peoples uh, came through here, came through this valley. In uh, New Zealand, Australia, and in Canada now, uh, it's commonplace to acknowledge the, uh, the lands that were once held by indigenous peoples before Europeans came, before colonization happened. Um, and I, th I think my understanding is that indigenous people in this country would also uh, like us to take up this practice. So as I said before, racism is a difficult topic. Uh, it can be very emotionally charged. So if at any time you feel like you need to step out to take care of yourself, uh, please feel free to do that. So uh, what is racism? Uh, often when we hear this word, we think of maybe a kind of unsavory comment that we heard um, directed at a person of color or people of color. And, and that's a part of what racism is, but, but it's, it's more. And I want to um, suggest that we, we can look at, at prejudice and maybe we carry a prejudice against people with blue eyes. Um, we really don't want to talk to people with blue eyes or have anything to do with people with blue eyes. And maybe we so intensely don't like people with blue eyes that we decide not to hire the people with blue eyes that come in to apply for a job in our, in our business. Um, but, but this wouldn't fall into the kind of category that I want to, um, the kind of systematic um, discrimination that happens in, when we talk about racism, because racism is happening all the time and in every, um, in every facet of our society, whether it's our economy, whether it's housing, whether it's education, whether it's our criminal justice system. Uh, it, it's almost, uh, if, if you're new to this idea, it's almost unfathomable, right? Haven't we gone through the civil rights period and we're a little more uh, um, developed? Uh, but but it's, it's really not the case. So in our educational system, we see um, young uh, black and brown uh, children suspended from school at a far, far higher rate than we see their white counterparts for the same or similar kinds of um, disciplinary or, or infractions on school codes. 
uh, in our financial and banking and housing systems, uh, we see um, black and brown people denied uh, loans, even though this is illegal. Um, this is still happening today. And when we had our uh, recession 10 years ago, uh, the people that suffered the greatest from that were, were people of color in our society. Um, they were the ones that were um, offered the subprime mortgages, right? Um, it happens in, in applying for jobs. Um, people of color are less likely to get hired even though they have the same qualifications. It happens in our political system. So recently in North Carolina, we saw an attempt to close down like seven voting districts uh, in, in a majority African-American uh, communities and counties. Uh, in our criminal justice system, we see black and brown people uh, stopped by police at higher rates. We see them arrested at higher rates. We see them searched at higher rates. Um, if they're found guilty, they get harsher sentences, right? And this is, this is what's happening today in the United States. In healthcare, um, African Americans and uh, Native Americans receive um, far um, are not um, don't have the same outcomes for similar kinds of illnesses, uh, even when you um, uh, consider other factors like um, income and education, right? So it 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 goes on and on, and I. Um, I really, I started to look into this uh, in 2000. I, sh I should say, I, I'll back up and say this has always been a passion of mine. But when I went to live in rural Virginia in 2010, I f in one of the, the most impoverished counties in Virginia, I, I felt the legacy of slavery was still very palpable there. And it brought a great, um, pain and even outrage into me. And I began to ask, what's going on here? And why is it still like this? Why are African-Americans, uh, some African-Americans, still living without indoor plumbing? And um, this was a, uh, a county where I also spent time as a child, and so it's like 45 years later, things really don't look that much different. So I'm, uh, I'm going to shift gears a little bit and read a piece that I wrote um, in my newly formed writing group that happened for the first time a few days ago. And I, I felt like I needed to express some of my, my anguish and um, inquiry ar around this topic. And uh, so, so this is a little bit raw, um, but I, I'm going to read this, this piece that I wrote. And, um, and I just want to give you a heads up. It, uh, the word Negro is used in this piece. 
Uh, and I'll just, um, one, one other thing is that the location is, is in Virginia on the uh, shores of the Chesapeake Bay. The piece is titled, uh, This Life is Leftover from My Ancestors. Graves of human atrocities lie silent in the most peaceful of lands, lands where the soft, moist sea breezes flex the grasses, flutter the magnolia leaves, and ripple the brackish waters, leaving warm tidal pools on the mudflats. This place where land and water meet undivided, where the barnacles glue themselves to the dock piers, the crabs scoot themselves sideways, the gulls circle the sky, squawking their presence, and children run freely along wild, open beaches. This life is left over from my ancestors. It suspends itself silently in the air. It rests dormant in the earth. It lurks beneath the waves. Why don't my ancestors tell me about my inheritance, my inheritance as the descendant of slaveholders? My friend Art told me that his grandmother didn't ever want to talk about being born into slavery. The humiliation was too great. And so these things are not spoken, they are not told, neither enslaver nor enslaved. Perhaps my ancestors are pressing me to tell these secrets now. Perhaps it was they who drove me to the courthouse in the town of Accomack, Virginia in 2012, took my hand in theirs as we walked down the basement steps and then opened the record books, housing centuries of wills. Perhaps they pressed me into reading the most elegant of English script, naming my forebearers human chattel. In the name of God, I, Jacob Northam, of Accomack County and State of Virginia, do make and ordain this my last will and in testimony, in manner and form, as follows to wit. I leave unto my wife, Sally Northam and James Northam, the whole of my estate, real and personal, so long as they both shall live, and at their deaths, I give all my land on Masongo to my grandson, Thomas Alfred Northam, and one Negro girl by the name of Mary, one Negro boy by the name Ezen. My land in Pocomoke, where I live, I give unto my grandson, Thomas Alfred Northam, at the deaths of my wife, Sally, and James Northam, and I do hereby dispose my Negro girl, Anne. In witness, I have here unto set my hand and seal the, this, the 15th day of January, 1839, Jacob Northam. Restless secrets lie in shallow graves. Hand me the shovel to dig into the soil of my family, the soil of enslaver and enslaved. Our lives interwoven as plainly as the sunlight graced the brown shoulders of the light-skinned Negro children. The lies double back on each other until our books, speech, and political correctness are so stained with misinformation as to be unintelligible. Benign slave masters, they stated confidently. What wound penetrated so deeply that we pronounce goodness on a system 
that separated young children from their mothers and sold them on an auction block. Gather the farm implements, cultivate the soil, tend the soul of this life left over. Who among us doesn't carry these dark secrets of the past that aren't really past? The legacy of slavery hangs silently in summer's breathless air. We breathe it and it breathes us. So the will that I read is my great-great-grandfather's. And um, it, you know, it wasn't always possible for me to share this in a group. Um, in fact, well, this is the first time I've shared it in a group um, because I, I, I carry shame around this, this history. Um, but what I, what I know about my own healing is the importance of telling the truth. And, and, I, you know, I, and this is also what this country needs. It's not just what Asia needs, but it's a part of what I need. I also talked about my friend Art uh, because his grandmother was born into slavery and uh, art is alive and well today, and we think of slavery as something that happened, you know, long, long time ago. But um, it's the impact of that is still still very much with us. Uh, slavery was not just in the South; um, it was in the North, and even after the Northern uh, states abolished uh, slavery. There was much in the northern economy that uh, interfaced with slavery. Um, so there was a lot of um, banking uh, where people would take insurance out on the people that they enslaved. Um, the DeWolf family in, out of Bristol, Rhode Island, was the largest slave trading family in the history of the United States. And although the practice of owning uh, human beings was, was eradicated, by and large, um, after the Civil War, uh, there was something we didn't eradicate. And it's still with us today. And it's the, there's an idea uh, that people of color aren't, don't have the same value and don't have the same worth and that uh, those of us with Northern European ancestry are, um, are somehow a little better. And as I um, began to reflect on my own uh, history growing up in Baltimore City, um, there, were, there were many messages along these lines um, that I received. And it would take too long to share those with you. Um, 
But I think it's really important that if, we're, if we don't want racism in our society, uh, it's really important we begin to think how we've been shaped by racism, which is ubiquitous and um, in every aspect of our society. And it's in our textbooks. That's another piece that I didn't mention earlier. Um, yeah, so uh, fast forward to uh, 2005. And um, what I have here is a picture of, um, of uh, victims from Hurricane Katrina, people that are trying to survive after Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans in 2005. There's two pictures. They're up here at the top. There is a white couple. And they're, in, they're trying to walk through chest deep water. And they've got um, bags of stuff with them. And the caption reads, uh, two residents wade through chest deep water after finding bread and soda from a local grocery store in New Orleans. And then down at the bottom, um, there's a picture of a black individual. And um, it says it's a man, but I, it's actually a woman. Uh, um, but, but anyway, um, it says, a young man walks through chest deep flood water after looting a grocery store in New Orleans on Tuesday, August 30th, 2005. So the white people who are in the same predicament as the black person are presented as um, victims. And the black person down here, also a victim, is actually presented as a criminal. And oftentimes we don't see this because it's just such a part of the fabric of society that we live in that we don't even question it. Right? And perhaps the reporter or the photographer who took the picture and put this tagline in of this man looting, perhaps he or she didn't question it either um, because it's just where our minds have been trained to go. And in order to um, challenge that training, we need to use our mindfulness practice. And we need to use, we need to begin to cultivate awareness around how this is everywhere, everywhere in, in the United States. It doesn't matter whether we're in Montana, in Virginia, in Berkeley, in New Orleans, in Mississippi. It doesn't matter. This is in every nook and cranny of our society. I'm going to pass this around so people can. Are we doing on time? So um, what I hinted at here in terms of the reporter who put this together and the readers that are receiving this information um, is something called implicit bias. And so um, an example of how this, this works or has worked 
uh, one example that I like to use is women uh, auditioning for orchestras. So it used to be, I see some musicians nodding their heads. Uh, it used to be that um, people just came out on stage, they played their instrument, their violin, their bass, whatever it was, and the um, mostly men uh, hearing, hearing the, the piece or whatever was played, you know, decided that whether this person was qualified to play in the orchestra. Well, you know, it turns out that very few women were hired. <laughs> and this was because of implicit bias. We, we don't think of women as qualified to put, play in orchestras. Um, so we don't hire them. And once they moved to auditions where women were behind a curtain, and you couldn't tell from the shoes either of you know, high heels or that kind of thing, once that happened, the hiring of women jumped like 30%. The University of Chicago has done studies sending out resumes and they have sent out these resumes uh, of people who have similar qualifications, sort of equal qualifications for certain jobs. And they send out resumes with black sounding names and they send out resumes with white sounding names. And the people with white sounding names are, are called back or invited in for an interview at a 50% higher rate. There is a, a test online that um, tests our, our susceptibility to implicit bias. And I, I've taken this test a number of times. And each time I come out with a strong preference, not each time, but sometimes I come out with a strong preference for white people. Sometimes I come out with a moderate preference for white people. And sometimes I come out with a slight preference for white people. But I never come out with equal. And I don't come out with a preference for African-American people. Again, this is something I could not have articulated five, seven years ago. I was too embarrassed to say that this, this, this truth. So th this is my invitation to you uh, to look into your own conditioning around this topic. Um, and it takes courage. And it takes humility. I also want to say I didn't know my history in this country. And I'm still learning my history of, of this country. And when we don't know our history, it's very hard to see why the things that are happening today are, are happening. Um, why do we see so many uh, young black men's, unarmed young black men's lives taken by police? If we're white, 
we have to cultivate our capacity to drop our defensiveness. We have to be willing, maybe have to be isn't the right word, but I encourage us to look into how we've been socialized. We're often caught in a kind of binary, like I'm not racist, but that guy over there carrying the tiki torch in Charlottesville, that guy's racist, right? But if we want to shift everyday things in this country that have a huge impact on people of color, and by everyday things, I mean getting hired for a job, getting promoted in a job, um, being invited to go do something. Yeah, we have to look at our conditioning. So often we focus on the triumphs and the struggles of people of color, um, but rarely do we ask struggles and triumphs in relation to whom. So we've all heard the Jackie Robinson story where he broke the color barrier. Well, Jackie Robinson wouldn't have broke the color barrier had the white men said he can't, still can't play professional baseball. And to the extent that we think that uh, racism is out there and it's held by extremists, uh, KKK, neo-Nazis, we, we won't look here. We won't look within our own uh, hearts and minds and the way we've been, been shaped. So I'm going to um, offer just a few, couple things in closing, and then, and then we'll open it up um, to, to you. Um, giving this topic uh, care and attention and um, engaging in, with it for the last eight years of my life has been liberating. <laughs> so there are places of uh, anguish for me, uh, discovering my great-great-grandfather's will. I didn't, I didn't know that was there until 2012. And yet, that kind of understanding, that knowing what, what that history is, both in my own life, as well as for us as a country, as a community, um, is, is liberating. It's liberating to see it. It's painful and it's liberating. Um, like Thich Nhat Hanh says, we have to uh, connect with our suffering to find a way out of suffering. So takeaways for tonight, um, I invite you to start to see, if you haven't already, start to see racism as systemic, not an individual act, 
perpetrated by someone else out there, but by interlocking systems that are always in play. And each of us has a connection to one or more of these systems. Um, we're all impacted by racism. White people are hurt too. We're impacted differently. But if we're white, um, the impact is uh, on us um, spiritually, psychologically, emotionally, morally. If we want to grow and evolve as human beings, we have to drop our defenses and look honestly at how we've been socialized. Racism is not going to end without white people, just like um, sexism doesn't just end because women call attention to it. It will take men to end sexism. It will take white people to understand and to be able to articulate, articulate and to be able to um, have courage to step up. So um, thank you all very much. I, I'm not sure how this uh, landed. I haven't uh, done this kind of talk before. Um, but I offer it as a hope that we can step closer to liberation, both in ourselves, in our communities, and as a nation. Thank you. circle and invite you to share your name and um, what brought you to here tonight. Um, maybe um, a personal connection you have to the topic of healing racism or um, moment that you've had. We do ask that the experience um, that you choose to share is from your, your own personal experience. Um, and um, 